and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. For the first 300 years of the existence of the church, being a Christian was arguably a really crazy thing to be. Because at any time, at any place, persecution might arise, and you might be actually killed just for going to church. So these might be very small, very regional persecutions, like the one that resulted in the death of the first martyr, Stephen. They might be larger, like the persecution that happened in the city of Rome in 64, in which St. Peter and St. Paul died. Or they might be across a huge swath of territory, like all of modern-day Turkey or all of modern-day North Africa. But as a Christian, you knew that at any time, you could get a new provincial governor who would be hard on the Christians, and churches would start to be raided, Christians would be round up, they would be forced to either make sacrifice to a Roman god, or they themselves would be sacrificed in the Colosseum in some sort of spectacle. By the time you get to the mid-200s, these persecutions are no longer local and regionalized, but become empire-wide. So first under the Roman Emperor Decius, and then later under Diocletian, you have well-ordered systematic persecution of Christians that extend throughout the entire empire. So everywhere, people are being forced to either make sacrifice or themselves be executed. Initially, this starts out in the Colosseums, as with earlier persecution of Christians, but later they just don't have enough animals and gladiators and other horrific torments for Christians to go around, and so they just start doing summary executions. Things are really grim and really bad. So the downside to all of this is that it was illegal to be a Christian and you could be murdered for being one, which is a pretty major downside. The upside is that everybody who joined the church got into it with their eyes open. People knew how illegal this was, how dangerous this was, how crazy it was to be a Christian. And in fact, just to go to church meant being willing to actually lay down your life. Like, basically everyone that went to church before the early 300s was saying, going to church is more important to me than continuing to live. Not just being faithful, not being a person who prays at home, not being a person who reads scripture or whatever, but actually being in church Sunday by Sunday is something worth dying for. And so if you're of this mindset that you're willing to die for your faith, then giving up things short of your life is easier in comparison. So if you're willing to give up your life to be a Christian, when the preacher says, and you also have to give up being miserly as a Christian, you have to become generous, you have to help the poor. Well, that's a lot better than being murdered. So yeah, that's a lower bar. I can probably do that. Or you have to stop gossiping. Well, I enjoy a good gossip. However, in the grand scheme of things, if I'm willing to die for this, I guess I can take up that cross too. I guess I can give up gossiping or keeping the fasts of the church or having a real sense of kindness and patience towards others, or trying to be a peacemaker, or trying to be just and fair and good and righteous and all these things. So being a Christian was this really pretty intense life. And the early church was full of these real spiritual athletes, these people who had trusted in God so much, put their self in God's hands so much, 
that they were really very willing to go where he led. Was everyone in the early church perfect? No, of course not. Absolutely not. And if you read any of the early church fathers getting into their own sins, you'll hear like this huge amount of humility and consciousness of how flawed they are and how broken they are and how they can never seem to get it right. And it's only the grace of Christ that lets them get anywhere. So in no sense was the early church a club of perfect saints. However, the threat of imminent death was a pretty high bar for membership, and it tended to draw people who were pretty darn serious about their Christianity. But in the year 313, everything changed. Christianity went from being illegal, went from being dangerous, to being the way you got into a really good country club, or the way you got a great deal on a used car. It became a kind of social climbing thing that you did. It was a church was a place that you went to see and be seen. So how did the world completely shift? How did the Roman Empire change so radically its opinion about Christianity over the course of one year? From 306 to 312, you have a lot of people applying for the job of Roman emperor. And the way that you typically apply is to round up an army and fight some other armies and try and battle your way to the top. Keeping up with battles at this point is tricky because you don't just have one Roman emperor. You have four kind of legal, recognized Roman emperors, all ruling at the same time in a hierarchy. And then you have other people who are calling themselves Roman emperor, and some of the Roman population is recognizing them as such, some of them isn't. And what's more, half these guys are named Max. You have Maxentius, Maximian, Maximinius Dia. You have all these people named Max, and then on top of that, you have Galerius, you have Severus, you have Constantius, you have Constantine, you have Licinius. So it's a real laundry list of job applicants. Long story short, this guy Constantine, who's the son of Constantius, who had been one of the recognized emperors, Constantius dies, Constantine is acclaimed emperor of the West by his troops, by his dad's troops, and Constantine, like all these other people, is a regular old Roman pagan. At this time, the cult of the unconquerable sun, or the cult of Helios, the, the actual sun, as in like rises in the east, sets in the west sun, was dominant among military and political types. And Constantine had a special devotion to Helios, the unconquerable son. That being said, he was the son of a Christian. A Christian woman he didn't grow up around, who he may not have known extremely well at the time, but he did have some Christian influence in his life, and so he seemed to have been open to Christianity. His father also was famous for not being as harsh a persecutor of Christians as his other imperial colleagues. So there was a positive disposition, at least to some extent, towards Christianity in Constantine, but he was by no means a Christian. Two of the other guys vying to be emperor at this time were a tag-team father and son duo. The father had been an emperor, had been forcibly retired, the son wanted to be an emperor, so they joined forces and they waged war on another claimant to imperial power. This father-son duo fell apart at some point, and the father escapes to Constantine's court. There are various versions about what happens next, but from Constantine's perspective, the father tries to kill him, Constantine puts him in jail, and something happens in the jail cell, and the father dies. The son then says, look, me murdering my father, or at least trying to, that's a family matter. You know, that's, that's something that just happens in families sometimes. They murder one another. However, nobody else has the right to murder my dad. You have murdered my dad, and we are going to war. Constantine says, fair enough, let's go to war. But he has a problem. 
two-thirds of his army are fighting other battles with people along the Rhine River in modern-day Germany. So they're fighting off all these proto-Germans, and they can't leave this area. They can't just abandon these battles. So Constantine marches on Rome with just one-third of his army. And he's marching on this city that is so well defended. It has these huge, massive, giant, incredible walls built by this emperor Aurelian about 70 years before. And there is, it's just going to be impossible to scale these walls. There's no way to lay siege to the city of Rome. It's so well defended with these walls. It has incredible stockpiles of food and water. You know, they can wait you out for a really long time. And what's more, this guy, Maxentius, has this giant army behind the walls of Rome. So he can stay back behind the walls, pelt Constantine's army with spears and arrows and so forth until they're all defeated, and then that's it. That's the end of the threat. But Constantine goes forward with this attack anyway. But it's it's basically a suicide mission. So they're marching on the city of Rome. They get to about a day away from the city of Rome. And at this point, we're relying on two different historians. They're both Roman historians, but they're both writing official histories of Constantine. On the one hand, that's good, because they actually interview Constantine, or they interview people who were there. They have the facts straight from the horse's mouth. On the other hand, that's bad, because sometimes horses aren't reliable at relating their own stories. Sometimes if you are telling the story of something that happened to you in the past, you make yourself look a little bit better than someone else might have. And if uh, someone else, if the historian is on your payroll and dependent on your largesse, they might even make have a motivation to make you look better than you actually did. So we have these two great histories of these events, but these are very much the authorized version, not the tell-all version. So take it with a grain of salt. According to these two historians, a couple of different things happened, and there are some different perspectives on this reflected in these two works. So the day before the battle, Constantine looks up in the sky, and he sees a cross of light. It's this cross made of light in the sky. And across this cross are written the words, Tutaunika, through this victory, in Greek. Then he thinks, well, that's promising. It's a bit like Ice Cube looking up and seeing the Goodyear blimp with a positive message about himself after a very good day. So it's a good sign. And then that night, he has a dream. And in this dream, a god called Christ comes to him. And he says, here is a symbol that I want you to place on your shields and your helmets and your standards. And if you do this, you will have victory over your opponent. And Constantine wakes up and he thinks, I literally have nothing to lose. This is not going to go well no matter what, so why not? And so Constantine marches into battle under the symbol that no one has seen before. And it looks to us like an X with a P through it. And that X is the Greek letter chi, and the P is the Greek letter rho. It's the Cairo symbol. And chi makes the sound k, and rho makes the sound r. So these are the first two letters of the word Christ, and they kind of function like a monogram for Christ. So they're marching into battle under this sign of Christ, although 99% of his men had no idea what it was for, and no one had ever seen it before. But Constantine was told to do this in a dream. He saw the cross of light in the sky through this conquer, by this victory. And so he thinks, well, why not? So Maxentius is hiding out behind these Roman walls with his giant army, with his huge food supplies, with his huge water supplies, and he has zero problems. He's not worried about this at all. But he decides to make the craziest 
decision in maybe all of military history. And he decides that he's going to go out and face Constantine on the field of battle for no apparent reason. It may be that he was reading a book of prophecies of the Sibylline Oracle that said, on this specific day, an enemy of Rome will die, and he thought, oh, that means Constantine. We don't know what made him actually take this crazy, crazy decision, but take it he did. So he built this pontoon bridge over the Tiber River, the swift-flowing river that, that borders the city of Rome, and so that he could get lots and lots of, of men across quickly. So he builds this floating bridge, and he starts pouring out all of his soldiers onto the field of battle. But they're poured out into a pretty tight, confined space, because you have all of Constantine's ranks of soldiers on one side, and then you have the river behind you, and so they're kind of like all packed in together, and they're spreading out, and they're spreading out, and Constantine uses his cavalry to kind of make incursions into these lines of soldiers. The soldiers fight back, but they can't do it very efficiently. There's not a lot of room to fight, and Constantine is pushing them further and further back against the Tiber, and they're starting to fall into the water and drown. And so Maxentius says, okay, this is going very poorly, retreat! And so they all start rushing back across this floating pontoon bridge, and it collapses under their weight. And so now the only way to get back into the city of Rome is the Milvian Bridge. And the Milvian Bridge is just this regular old small commuter bridge. So four armored soldiers can, uh, can pass abreast at one time. So you have this incredible bottleneck of all these soldiers trying to get back across the bridge, back into the city of Rome, their backs are turned to Constantine, they're trying to escape, and so Constantine's men just swoop in, and it's a very quick, I'm sure very grisly victory for Constantine. So Constantine very quickly finishes this battle, marches into the city of Rome, they roll out the red carpet, there's ticker tape, there's confetti, you know, the Romans are like, you won, so you're the boss, whatever you say, that's fine. And, uh, in short order, he is the emperor of the West, without any competition, so Constantine sits down and he's thinking, okay, this god Christ, not bad. I'm definitely a fan. Um, this had to have been some sort of divine intervention. This has to have been some sort of miracle because I had zero chance. And if Maxentius hadn't made this insane decision to build a pontoon bridge and fight in this little tiny space with his back to the water, I would probably be toast right now. So I owe this god Christ majorly. What could I do? What could I do that would benefit this God Christ, or at least benefit his followers? What's some kind of little token gesture that I could make? Oh, I know, I'll stop torturing them to death. So Constantine sits down with the Emperor of the East, who at this point is a guy named Licinius, and they hammer out a deal that they are going to have religious toleration. It's called the Edict of Milan, it passes in 313, and suddenly it is no longer illegal to be a Christian. So the floodgates are open for popular Christianity. Licinius, not a big Constantine fan, not a big fan of the Christians, continues to do some persecuting on his own, but officially you can be a Christian in Rome and there are no negative consequences. So one week before, going to church in the ancient Roman Empire meant cowering before dawn in a hidden back room in someone's house trying to be quiet so the Roman soldiers didn't hear you worshiping. And then a year later, you can go to church and see the emperor himself in church. Like the church is a public thing. Suddenly clergy who were these um, vile rebels who should be wiped out were suddenly these kind of honorable figures who people started treating with respect. And pretty soon you get these big churches being built. 
So they're not just little tiny homes, they're these giant basilicas. And by the 320s, Constantine is funding these incredible, huge, astonishingly beautiful, amazing architectural edifices all over the world. In the Holy Land, he's building a church at Bethlehem, he's building a church in Jerusalem, he's building churches in Turkey, he's building churches in the Roman Peninsula. So these giant, mega, amazing churches are just kind of sprouting up all over the place. And it's this radical transition in the identity of Christianity. So one decade, you are totally persecuted. You have to be willing to give up everything to be a Christian. The next decade, it may be that your boss is a Christian and you're just going to church so he can see you there on Sundays and think like, oh, maybe this is a reliable guy. I should promote him. And this phenomenon of the Sunday Christian is born. Somebody who goes to church for an hour on a Sunday, sometimes, and then basically doesn't think about Christianity again for the rest of the week. And the funny thing is, that person is seated next to someone else whose whole life is her Christianity. I mean, she has given up everything. She gives all of her money to the poor. She's constantly fasting, lives this life of constant prayer. She is so peaceful and good and selfless. And these two people are now sharing a pew, even though they live these radically different lives. What's more, for some people, Christianity just becomes incorporated into the Roman marketplace of religions. So maybe you pray to Isis for one thing, you pray to Christ for another thing, and you pray to Helios for a third thing. Lose your keys, pray to Helios, need to take a trip, pray to Isis, whatever it is. And just Christianity is kind of one more prayer that you say to just keep all your bases covered. There are stories of people going into shops and... In the shop, the shopkeeper will have an, a little altar to Christ, and there'll be a picture of Christ and a candle burning, and then you go to the other side of the shop, and there's a little altar of Mercury, and there's a statue of Mercury, and there's some a libation of wine poured out for the god Mercury. And for the shopkeeper, it's a polytheistic world. This is not a problem. This is not a conflict. But for the church, this is horrific. This is the opposite of Christianity. So for Roman religion... Each god is somewhere, in a sense. Neptune is in the sea, uh, Jupiter is on Mount Olympus, Pluto is in the underworld. They have a sphere of influence, they have a place that they live, they have friends, they have spouses, they have things that they do. They're just humans writ large. These are stories about giant humans, in a way. So I'm a little bit powerful, the gods are super powerful. I'm a little bit hungry, the gods eat a ton. Christianity and Judaism have a completely different concept of divinity. So for Christians and for Jewish people, God is not somewhere. God is both everywhere and literally infinitely beyond everything. God is infinite and eternal, not temporal spatial. So he doesn't live somewhere, he doesn't eat specific he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't like he doesn't live like a person. He is not just some guy but giant. He is infinitely distinct from everything else in creation. So the church was very vehement about not just adding in Christianity into the Roman marketplace of religions and saying, look, if you're a Christian, you cannot be any of these other things anymore. You can't still worship Isis. You can't still worship Zeus. You have to just be a Christian or just be a pagan. But there is nothing in the middle of the road except yellow stripes and dead armadillos. And the clergy of this period really know what they're talking about. And they speak with a lot of authority because a lot of them 
were basically almost martyred. This is a time when it's very common for your priest to only have one leg, or to only have one hand, or to not have any eyes, or to not have any ears, or to have a horribly disfigured face, because so many clergy were rounded up and tortured, and if they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods, their tortured bodies were thrown into a cell to rot until there could be space made for them in a coliseum or in some mass summary public execution. And some of them survived to tell the tale. Either the prison ran out of space and they just got rid of a lot of not dangerous criminals, or they lasted out the persecution in jail. But these were really like living martyrs. These were people who were 100% ready to give up everything except their relationship to Christ. And these were the people preaching the sermons on Sunday morning. And so over time, a lot of these Romans who started going to church just to hear interesting rhetoric or to meet people in a different social class or to maybe find a spouse or whatever it was, people like St. Augustine of Hippo, they became just overwhelmed by the beauty of the Christian story, by the sense of God's love, God's goodness, peace, joy, beauty, all these things which were the hallmarks of God that everybody was searching for were actually found in the church. And so there were tons and tons of people who had their lives changed, whose hearts were radically open to the message of the gospel. But still, they were also just kind of regular Romans. And it was sort of hard to live in a society that was so codified with Roman norms, Romanitas it was called, it's kind of like what it is to be Roman, to not really fit into that, especially if maybe you did fit in really well to that just a couple of years before. So a couple of years before, you would go to a dinner party and you knew everybody and it was just old inside jokes and you guys were all just good friends hanging out, and now you go to the same dinner party and people are kind of silent around you. It's sort of like they think you've joined some weird cult and you're just kidding yourself that there's only one God and not a plurality of gods and that sacrifices don't matter and that your house isn't full of kind of fairy-like gods who are constantly putting out candles that you forgot to put out and tending your garden and so forth. Like, if you don't believe those things, you must have lost your mind. And this was hard. So in this time, if you were an educated person, you had been educated in the philosophy of Platonism. Not necessarily the philosophy of Plato, but certainly in the people who came after Plato, people like Plotinus. So if you went to a good university in Athens or in Alexandria, you would be studying Platonism. And that was sort of the intellectual language which you spoke and which you thought in. Platonism had several big problems with Christianity, and most of them related to the majesty of God and the lack of dignity that the material world has. So for a Platonist, God wouldn't go about creating the world himself. That would be absurd. That would be like a king who decides he wants some more roses in his garden and actually goes down to Home Depot himself, buys a whole bunch of roses, and then goes out to the stable, loads all the manure into the wheelbarrow, plants the roses, puts the manure on them. That's not how kings work. The king would tell the high lord chamberlain that he wants roses, and the high lord chamberlain would tell the upper butler that he wants roses, and the upper butler would tell the lower butler, and he would tell the head gardener, and the head gardener would tell this master of the stables, and the stable boy would bring the manure. The king doesn't sully his hands with roses and manure. In the same way, the god of Platonism would never actually condescend to 
create the creation. He wouldn't be shaping planets or creating stars or forming hills or, or whatever. This would just be a huge insult to his dignity. Instead, he creates through emanation. So he's just so full of being that his being wells over a little bit. And the extra being becomes the first kind of order of creation. And then that being wells over and that being wells over. So you get this kind of angelic hierarchy. And then there's a figure within all of that being who's kind of like the high lord chamberlain who organizes all the creation himself. Plato called him the demiurge in his dialogue, the Timaeus. Another giant critique that Platonism has is this idea that God, like the the one high God, would come down and become this helpless baby in middle of nowhere Palestine, and then go on to be this homeless rabbi who was full of love for every single man, woman, and child that he encountered, who got arrested, got beaten up real badly, and then was executed by Roman soldiers. This To Platonists, this is the most insulting, bizarre, heretical thing you could possibly say about the one who is infinitely distant from all creation, and in a sense has almost nothing to do with creation, except that he's just so full of being that his being welled over and happened to create creation itself. So if you're a Christian and you're at one of these dinner parties and the wine starts flowing and people start asking you these tough questions, don't you know that the one creates through emanation? He doesn't sell his hands. What kind of God is it that you worship that is like a king who would go out and dig in the dirt, dig in the manure, go to Home Depot himself and buy his own roses? What an undignified and kind of silly being for you to even hypothesize. And it's sort of embarrassing, because if you're a Christian, you just have to say, well, that's just what God revealed about himself. I, I know it doesn't really make sense with everything we learned from that guy in the toga and pallium at, at uh, Athens, but this is Christianity, so yeah, think, think whatever you're going to think, I guess. But then came along a guy called Arius of Alexandria, and he solved everybody's dinner party conversation problems. So... It's not clear that Arius was a dedicated Platonist, although a lot of scholars think that he probably was. But for whatever reason, Arius started teaching a brand new version of Christianity. And Arius was the priest at this really big, really important port-side church in the major, major, major shipping port of Alexandria. So boats from all over the world would dock in Alexandria. People would get off the boat, go to church, give thanks for not having been drowned beneath the waves, and they would hear Arius's preaching, and it became very famous. So Arius became this great public intellectual, and he was writing op-eds for the Times of Alexandria. He was on Good Morning Cairo every three weeks. I mean, he was just a famous guy. And the version of Christianity that he taught was this. It was that Jesus was fully human. Absolutely, no problem there. And Jesus was kind of divine. So in the incarnation, the person who was incarnate was not God per se. Instead, he was like God's first creation, the first person that God made or the first thing God made. He was like the highest angel. Arius went to elaborate lengths to prove this, not from the writings of Plato, but from scripture itself. So he had to take a lot of terms that are used of Christ in the New Testament and give them new definitions. So He said that son of God, which gets used over and over of Christ, it doesn't actually mean begotten son. So it's not like this human son of a human father in which the humanity of the son is inherited from the humanity of his mother and father. So if I have a daughter, which I do, 
Um, there's some chance that she might have green eyes like my wife or blue eyes like me, or maybe brown eyes, which could be some sort of trait that's just in our genes. But it's very unlikely that she would have uh, cat eyes or dog eyes or whale eyes or octopus eyes, because that's not in our DNA. And in the same way, if you're talking about begetting in the ancient world, that's talking about the DNA of the parents being present in the child, the nature of the parents being present in the child. So if two cats have a baby, it's always going to be a cat. It's never going to be a donkey. If a horse and a donkey have a baby, it's going to be a mule, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, but it's not going to be a chicken. So for the ancients, as well as for us, there's the sense that you inherit the nature of your parents. And so if God has a son, then that son's nature is God. So for the church, Christ had the divinity of the father and the humanity of his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. So he was fully divine, fully human. He had both those natures. But this obviously would be very problematic for Arius because this would make Christ sound like fully God. And there is only one divine being who is the father. Nobody else is divine. So he said that Christ was son of God in the sense that children do the will of their parents. So a son for in the New Testament, according to Arius, has nothing to do with who your actual father is. It has to do with the extent to which you obey someone. So if you are the perfect employee, you always show up on time, you do all your work, you're willing to check your email at three in the morning if that's what it takes, then you could be called a son of your boss because you do his will perfectly. And that's, that's the sense that the New Testament obviously is using sonship, which the church said that makes no sense whatsoever. That's a crazy argument. And Arius's chief scriptural proof came not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament, and from a book which many religious traditions put into a section of the Old Testament called the Apocrypha, which is not read in Judaism. And it's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. And in the eighth chapter of The Wisdom of Solomon, you have this depiction of wisdom as this woman who is with God from the foundation of the world, and she tells us that she was God's first creation. And so Arius says, this, the wisdom of God, this is obviously Christ. And so this, this woman who's figured here in this text, who is created by God, the first thing he creates, that's Jesus. That is the Lord. That is the Logos of God. That is the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And again, the rest of the church said, wait, what? Why? Are, if you want to start with Christ, why not look at John? Why not look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke? How about Paul's epistles? Maybe the epistle of Peter, the epistle of John, James. Why, why go to the Apocrypha if you want to talk about Jesus? If you want to get your information directly from the source, why not read the writings of people who were actually with God incarnate himself? So for Arius, Jesus, or the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos, was definitely not divine, was not God. Instead, the Logos, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself, was a creation of God. However, he was the most important creation. He was the head of creation because it was through him that God created everything. He was this Lord High Chancellor to whom the king says, plant some roses. Or he was the head gardener, or he was the underbutler, or whatever it is. The person who actually causes the roses to be planted, that is Jesus. The one who actually caused the hills to be made and the waters to cover the earth, that is Jesus, or the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos. 
But he was the one who created everything. So all things were made through him. So God created the whole world through this person who becomes incarnate as Jesus, through his son in quotation marks in the sense of the guy who does his will, through his favorite creation, his first creation, this first being that he made. And all the Platonists said, oh my gosh, that's exactly what Plato says. In his famous dialogue, The Timaeus, Plato has this figure called the public worker, or demiurge in Greek. And the demiurge, the public worker, is the one who actually fashions the world. He makes the hills, makes the mountains, makes the sea, kind of does everything, makes the planets, makes the atoms on God's behalf. And the public worker is an emanation of God, or he is a creation of God, but he himself is not God. He's like the next best thing, but he himself is not God. And so when people were hearing Arius' sermons and they were thinking about the Timaeus, they were like, oh my gosh, Plato was basically a Christian. We're saying exactly the same thing all along. All these people who have been disrespectful to me at dinner parties, they're going to get their major comeuppance when I start reading them Arius's sermons and show them how I'm actually a better Platonist than they are because I go to this whole Platonist church where we worship all the Platonic ideas and there is no difference between Platonism and Christianity. This is the best thing ever. But then the church decided to rain on their parade and say, no, it's not the same thing. Christianity is not just Platonism in action or Platonism in church. Christianity is what was taught by Christ. It's what is revealed by Christ. And he did not reveal that he was the demiurge who molded the hills. He revealed that he himself is the son of God, not in the sense of being obedient to God, but in the sense of everything that can be predicated of the father is predicated of the son. He is truly divine, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And the Arians said, you are destroying our rep. This is extremely frustrating. Why are you harshing our mellow? And the Arian faction became really large in the church. And the Orthodox, or the Trinitarian, the non-Arian faction, were really large in the church. And so Constantine, who had just negotiated this peace for the persecution of Christians, famously said, look, you were persecuted for 300 years, now you have peace, and you start persecuting one another. I don't really know what correct Christian theology is, because I'm brand new to all this stuff, but I wish you guys would just work it out among yourselves. And so to that end... I'm calling the first council of the church, the first ecumenical council where all the bishops come together and they hash it out. So next time we'll talk about what happens at that council of Nicaea, about the theology of the council, about the effects of the council, and we will continue marching on through the history of Christianity. Thanks for being with me.